You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. When I was in college, I worked at this summer camp in New Braunfels, Texas. Named T-Bar-M. It was probably the best job I ever had. T-Bar-M was this Christian camp where you know, I actually got to oversee all the programs. And so what that meant was I did all the comedy sketches, all of the uh, fun events and theme nights. Uh, I even started leading worship there. That's kind of really where I developed my, my craft a little bit. I shouldn't say craft, that's so dumb. But the point is, that's really where I got a lot of opportunity just to kind of see the Lord work in some really cool ways. And one of my favorite things that we did every week is on Wednesday nights, we'd have a gospel presentation where we get all these kids lined up, we just send them down the football field and they're with their counselors, and we would take them through these different stations that represented the last night uh, when Jesus was betrayed, crucified, and then ultimately we'd walk them all the way to the resurrection. And it's powerful, man. Like it was, it was so cool to see these little humans, to see it click for the first time in many cases, and they understand, oh, that's who Jesus is, that's what he's done, and just a powerful night all around. And I don't remember the name of this little boy, but I remember one week I saw this little kid and he was just, he seemed like he was processing something. And so I went up to him and I said, hey, buddy, like, what are you thinking about? What did you learn tonight? And he looked at me deadpan and just goes, nothing. I learned nothing. And I said, neat. Your parents just uh, paid a small fortune to send you to camp. Glad it was all worth it. Well, the next day we're at lunch and the same little boy comes to me with a like a plate with a baked potato on it and goes, Hey, Mr. Sean. I go, Whoa, whoa, kid, no need for the the formality here. It's just Mr. He goes, right, right. Uh, Hey, Mr. Look, this is my body broken for you. And I said, did you just use a baked potato to quote Jesus to me? And he said, I sure did. I did. I said, I respect that. Now here's the best part. Later that week, apparently it turns out the kid was engaged with the gospel presentation because he was involved in Bible study. He started participating in all the singing and all the worship. And come to find out, he actually placed his faith in Jesus that week. So it's pretty cool. And I submit to you, and it's a stretch, but I submit to you that perhaps the catalyst for corporate worship for him, perhaps the catalyst for more worship was a symbolic baked potato. Maybe not, but... The reason I say that is because if worship is just singing, if all it is what we do here on these Zoom calls or back when we met in person on a Sunday morning when we sing, we hear from someone, we take communion, like those things are are well and good. But if that's it, then worship kind of gets stale after a while. And I say that as the guy that holds a guitar and helps sing, like it's just going to get old. Now, don't get me wrong. I love it. I love back when we could gather together. I love that we can gather together now over Zoom. But I love those moments when we're all in one auditorium and we're praising the name of Jesus. One of my favorite things to do is to step back from the mic because I'm feeling the Holy Spirit and I'm lifting up the name of our Savior and I can hear all your voices doing the same. There is nothing like that. I live for those moments because Jesus is being praised at Midtown and it's incredible. And that's not all that worship is. It can't be. And so that's why I'm excited that we are continuing our Psalms of the Summer series. I mean, specifically today, we're in Psalm 105, which is really kind of a masterclass in what worship looks like. And so a couple things about this Psalm to give you context. 
It was written by David, and we know that because of 1 Chronicles 16, it's like this exact same start of the passage. It was written sometime before Indiana Jones found the Ark of the Covenant from the Nazis, and sometime after the Israelites returned it to Jerusalem, so context here. But the general idea is that this is equal parts an instruction manual, and equal parts when it comes to worship, and equal parts a history lesson for worship, and if we'll let it, it's a mirror that we can hold up to our lives to see how we respond in worship. So if you want to understand kind of where my thought process is being built upon, there's four main questions I'm going to ask today. Four big ones. One, what is worship? Two, what produces worship? Three, what does worship produce? And then four, what are we worshiping? So again, what is worship? What produces worship? What does worship produce? And what are we worshiping? Let's start with the obvious, the, the first one. What is worship? Well, again, it's got to be more than singing. If you ask an eight-year-old, it's a baked potato. It can be a lot of things. But let's just look at the word itself. Worship is an old English word for worth-ship or worthiness. I feel like worship kind of gets over-spiritualized sometimes, but it's actually kind of a straightforward concept. A thing has value, therefore I affirm its value. Prime example. My favorite movie of all time, I would even dare to say the greatest movie of all time, is The Dark Knight. I literally just watched it with my roommates last week or the week before. It still holds up. It's fantastic. And even if you don't agree with me, chances are you probably think, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty good movie. And you know what? We're not alone because if you look at the box office numbers it pulled in 2008, it did gangbusters. And if you look at the critical response in IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, it is widely praised as a cinematic accomplishment. It has worth. We affirm its worth. Makes sense. So the psalm itself in 105, it's not telling us necessarily what worship is, but it certainly tells us what worship looks like. So here's what I mean. First five verses, David writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. And nothing makes me worship like judgments. Amen. Amen. I'm kidding. But Psalm 105 gives us a how-to of worship. Keep in mind, these elements of worship that David is rattling off, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a great starting place. So a couple things that he identifies here. Worship is giving thanks. It's calling upon the Lord's name. It's singing. It's telling stories. It's celebration. It's curiosity about who God is. It's praying. It's reminding yourself of who God is. Because here's the subtext. Worship is in our nature. You can't not worship any more than you can not breathe air. It's just what you do. You were built for that. You were created to something, consciously or not. So whether it's your career or work or successes in, in, in sports or relationships or luxury or even church, even nationalism, I realize the day after the 4th of July, not an indictment, I'm just saying something to consider. You will always worship something. So the question is not whether or not you worship. The question is whether or not you worship Jesus. And here's the main point that I'm going to keep coming back to throughout the course of this. When the object of your affection is Jesus, everything else falls into place. 
When the object of your affection is Jesus, everything else is just going to work out. But we'll come back to that. So what is worship? Well, it's worth. It's an item that has worth and we respond and affirm its worth, right? So next question, what produces worship? Well, let's not overcomplicate this one either. Again, if an item has worth, we respond with worship. So what produces worship? Worth, worthiness, value. To give you another cinematic example, I think about my eight-year-old niece, Caitlin, and like many of your children, she loves Frozen and Frozen 2. She can't get enough of it. And I remember uh, when Frozen 2 came out, my, my brother Nathan, her dad, and I took her and her little sister Hannah to go see Frozen 2. And I want to make it very clear, I went with my family. Otherwise, I'm a 30-year-old man that went and saw a cartoon about an ice princess, and that's just odd. But the point is, we went and saw Frozen 2, and at the end of it, I mean, Caitlin was just transfixed. I mean, she was just soaking in the moment. And I turn around, I go, hey, Caitlin, like, was it okay? Like, what did you think? Was it okay? And she goes, Uncle Sean, it was better than okay. It was pretty good. Now, for an eight-year-old, inflection isn't necessarily there, and she didn't necessarily have the lexicon to, to say it this way, but I imagine what she actually meant was, Uncle Sean, it was a transcendental experience. Uncle Sean, the, it was such an indelible movie. It, it was there in, in the context. Objectively, she's wrong. Frozen 2 isn't that good. It was just a glorified cash grab. But the point remains, it was the object of her affection, and so she praised it. And it continues to be something that she praises as she watches it over and over and over again on Disney+. Plus. You parents feel me. That and trolls too. Kids can't get enough of it. Now, are we going to check her heart at some point and point her to Jesus? Of course, she's full of sin. But the point remains, the object of your affection will be worshipped by you. So in Psalm 105, David is, is talking about the Lord's worthiness because we praise that which has worth. And so he says in verses 7 and 8, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. And then the next 34 verses are basically just a history lesson in the Lord's credentials and his promises being fulfilled with Israel. Using examples from Abraham to Joseph to Moses and so on and so forth, the Lord, uh, the Lord is demonstrating his goodness, his faithfulness, his consistency, and David highlights this. He says the Lord honors his promises. He educates, he protects, he gives generously. He's powerful. He even has a great memory according to these verses. So probably good at Stratego. The point is, David's telling us the Lord has more value, more worth than anything else you could possibly fixate on. So worship him. Because when the object of your affection is Jesus, everything else falls into place. So what is worship? An item has worth, we affirm it. What produces worship? Worth. Now, what does worship produce? Well, let's look at the end of the passage. In verse 43, David goes on. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. So what, produces, what does worship produce? There's a number of right answers here. You could say joy, singing, obedience, even a good work ethic. But I think you could sum it all up with one, one word. What does worship produce? Transformation. Worship produces transformation. Worship changes you, good or bad. You are what you eat. Case in point, 
if I eat well, if I exercise, if I rest, I'm going to look and feel healthier versus if I binge watch The Office for four hours every day and eat Pete Terry's for every other meal, it's going to be great for a moment, but eventually I'm going to start to look like a pasty bald potato more so than I already do. And the point is, it's direct input, direct output. And that's why Paul cares so much about our consumption when he writes in Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Because worship will tune your heart to the thing you worship. When your discipline is to honor the Lord, eventually your reflex will be honoring to the Lord. One of my mentors growing up, uh, he's actually a worship leader as well. His name is Paul Emerson. He always told me, disciplines don't create results, but they put you in a place where you are more likely to achieve results. Didn't know what that meant for a long time. Eventually it clicked, but I think a great way to illustrate this was actually shown in The Last Dance, the fantastic Michael Jordan documentary we got during quarantine. If you haven't seen it, what are you waiting for? Jump on it. It's fantastic. Even if you don't like sports, it's amazing. It deserves cinematic praise. Uh, so we all know MJ, perennial talent, became the greatest basketball player on the planet. But before he started winning championships, he could not get past the Detroit Pistons. And for the uninitiated, the Detroit Pistons, they were a dirty team. They played physical. They were rough. And, and they just kept literally bruising MJ down. Finally, he gets fed up with it to where one offseason, he just hits the gym like a madman, puts on like 30 or 40 pounds of muscle and works on his technique and his speed and everything. And the very next, uh, uh, very next year, he goes on, plays the Pistons again, beats them, goes on to win an NBA championship, his first one against the Los Angeles Lakers, and the rest is history. Now, I submit to you, uh, did lifting weights, did uh, working on technique and cardio, did improving his shot, did these things in and of themselves beat the Detroit Pistons? No, but these things made it way more likely that he would have success and beat the Detroit Pistons. And us as believers, I don't think it's that dissimilar when we think about our spiritual disciplines. You know, right? So like, you know, sharing stories, celebrating, giving thanks, these things in and of themselves they're not going to make us better Christians, but they make it way more likely that we're going to trust and follow Jesus. When we take the time to make this a priority, it becomes way more likely that we are going to actually surrender and worship Jesus and give him all the praise to the point where eventually everything we do in our lives becomes true worship to Jesus. Because... When the object of your affection is Jesus, everything else falls into place. When your aim is to honor Jesus, then eating, drinking, sleeping, exercise, work, marriage, sex, sports, movies, gathering from a social distance, and so on, all become true acts of worship. Another way of looking at this, uh, one of my favorite uh, songwriters, and we've actually sang a number of his songs at Midtown, David Crowder, one time he wrote a book called Praise Habit. And in his book, he says it like this. It is more difficult to find the creator in a barbecue sandwich than in your favorite Sunday morning song. But when you do, when you begin to find him in all the stuff of life, everything starts singing. Every moment breaks into song. Every breath becomes sacrifice. And the songs become sweetness. 
This is living praise. Or another way of looking at this, when asked by Jimmy Kimmel whether or not he's a Christian artist, the theologian and apparent presidential nominee, Kanye West, responded with, quote, I'm just a Christian everything, end quote. Because regardless of what you think about Kanye, the point remains that worship can't be compartmentalized. It's everywhere. And this is just a, a quick aside. I, I find this really fascinating. In the Catholic tradition, nuns wear habits. Like that's, that's what they wear, is a habit. And not to get all Chris Traeger on you, but they quite literally wear their devotion, right? They adorn themselves with worship. That every time they look in the mirror, every time they put on the habit, they're reminding themselves, I belong to Jesus. He is worthy of all my praise. My identity is quite literally covered with Jesus to the point where this exterior action seeps into their hearts where they finally fully believe that and they worship him with reckless abandon. I just think that's interesting. That's all. So what is worship? Well, it's when we affirm something's worth. What is, what is, what produces worship? Worth. What does worship produce? Transformation. It changes you. Which brings us to the last question. What are we worshiping? What is the object of your affection? Is it the number of people that agree with you on social media? Is it whether or not you look and feel like an influencer else? Is it respect or authority at work? Is it the Republican or Democratic Party or living a Ron Swanson libertarian lifestyle? Is it the Marvel Cinematic News Cycle or conspiracy theories about COVID? Is it music or listening to bands nobody else has heard of? Is it your children or the hope of having children? Is it fitness or counting your macros? Is it financial success or home ownership? Is it anything other than Jesus? And if so, how's that working out for you? Are you satisfied? Has the object of your affection been everything you thought it was going to be? Don't get me wrong. I mean, these bad. I mean, cowboy. That's not the point. These things, though, are potentially things. But the problem is, are craziers. They're craziers. I know these ones. I way to think about it. And then I realized, and even in my lighter moment, I'm trying to post money, maybe to make content in my life, any compulsory to rise on it. There's still a little bit of me that wants the worship for myself. Another, just if I'm being completely honest, another vulnerable example is even when I lead worship corporately here at Midtown. Even in those moments where I step away from the mic and I'm feeling the Holy Spirit and I'm feeling, seeing you guys respond, even in those moments, I still kind of want it to be about me. There's still part of me that's like, I want you to like me. I want you to walk away thinking like, I don't know why he has that weird Irish voice for some reason, but you know what? I like it. It works for him. I want you to think that I'm good at this. And I fully realize that in saying this, the next time I lead worship, you're in the back of your mind, you're gonna be like, all right, what's his agenda here? And good, because what's the point on standing on sanctimony? These are terrible idols. Why not hold them up to light? Because they are nothing compared to Jesus. So why cling to it? Why not confess it? Because it's a terrible savior. Approval is a terrible savior. Whatever you're holding on to, fill in the blank, is a terrible savior if it's not Jesus. Amen? I imagine 
we're all in a similar place in the sense of there's never really been anything we've done completely altruistically, but here's the good news. Here's the good news. Someday when we see our savior face to face, he will redeem us completely to the point where we do worship with reckless abandon, where we do worship without holding on to our egos or agendas or, or whatever it is that's slowing us down. Someday he will do that and he will make all things perfect. And I think he's in the process of that right now. And it's something that we're going to keep struggling through in this life, this side of heaven. And I think it's really important that we remember there is a greater hope for worship to come to where the things that we do every day, whether it's eating, hanging out with people, whether it's sports and competition, those things will be redeemed to the point where they are true acts of obedience to the Lord and they honor him hundred percent altruistically. And I also think it's important that we find and examine examples here in this life of people that remind us of the hope of worshiping in heaven. And for me, there's one guy that kind of stands above the rest and, and he is no less sinful. He's, uh, Dom just turned around looking at me. It's not Dom. I promise you that. But there's one guy who stands above the rest. He is no less sinful than anyone else, but he loves Jesus really, really well, better than probably anyone else I've met. He's actually a dear friend of mine and Justin Christopher's. His name is Roger. And to give you some context, Roger has cerebral palsy and uh, Roger can't feed himself. He can't go outside by himself. He can't do most of the things that you and I would take for granted. And I met Roger back in college and uh, we were, I remember being in a high school gymnasium of 2000 people and I could hear Roger's voice above everyone else's because he, even including the worship leader in the, in the PA system, because Roger was crying out to his savior with complete reckless abandon because he was so excited to celebrate the name of Jesus. He believed that Jesus was the greatest object of his affection in those moments. And I think about Roger will tell you in a given conversation, the reason why he, he praises so well, praises the Lord so well, is he's told me time and time again, I thank Jesus daily that he's given me cerebral palsy because it's forced me to be dependent on him, which is just an incredible statement. And in the same breath, he'll tell you, and it's hard, knowing I'll never be able to go on dates, I'll never be able to go out by myself. I'll never be able to go swimming. I'll never be able to go running. These things that we just don't even think twice about. And he says it's lonely, understandably. But then he'll turn around and say, but when I think about how my Jesus was alone on the cross, was truly alone and abandoned by God for me, when I think about that, this is nothing. Because my Jesus is who he says he is. My Jesus is worthy. And just incredible, incredible statement of faith that the object of his affection is Jesus. And this, this is not a, a theological basis to hang your hat on. I remember one time a mentor told me and stuck with me that everyone, everyone will run to Jesus when they see him face to face. When, we, when, when this life is done, we are united with Christ. You better believe you're going to run to your Savior. But I think people like Roger are going to run a little bit faster because they already have the head start. And again, he's not perfect. He's, he's sinful just like the rest of us, but he is worshiping with reckless abandon. He has proclaimed that Jesus is worthy, the object of his affection. So what is the object of your affection? Because when it's Jesus, 
everything else falls into place. I really just want to encourage you to make this your prayer, that you be honest with the Lord about the things that you worship that are not worthy and that you would confess that to him and ask him to be the object of your affection. And maybe you're even in a place right now where you're saying, I don't know that I want to worship Jesus, but I want to want to worship Jesus. Tell him that. I think that's a great place to start. And eventually, everything we do will be true worship to him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are worthy of all praise. I thank you that you are the greatest object of affection. I thank you that you work in our lives, that you continue to pull us from our narcissism, from our vanity, from our weak, stupid idols, and that you point us back to Jesus, who is who he says he is. Lord, would you work in our hearts? Would you change our hearts that we would want you above all things? And if we're not in that place, Jesus, work in our hearts that we would want to want you above all things. Lord, you are who you say you are, and we thank you for this time. And I pray that our responses to you would be honest and one step closer to what our worship will look like in heaven. Praise in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.